Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Realcom Live. Um, I'm going to get back into the habit I started last year on, on trying to name or give a couple words to the episode, um, just to kind of sum it up. And uh, I'd say today's conversation is critical. And while some of you may not really understand why a real estate tech conversation would involve understanding the financial status of the market, um, I believe it does. And I'll go all the way back to 1990 when I was a CIO at a real estate company. And when things were going good and money was flowing, projects were easy to get approved and companies were willing to take risks. And all of a sudden, when we turned that corner and financing got tight in the market, meaning deals weren't closing, leases were getting canceled, properties weren't worth as much as we thought they were, um, that spirit, that sentiment made its way down to my budget. And, and so if, if we, we all know the last couple of years have been interesting, we've been kind of going through this market and um, uh, something this morning, um, just to kind of give you an idea of what I'm talking about, um, Ian, if you could bring that up, um, it said that um, the Mortgage Bankers Association is saying that their estimate is $659 billion, uh, may actually be $929 billion uh, of debt maturing in 2024. And so if that is the case, um, we're in for some rough times because those loans were taken out at higher values with better interest rates. And when they're trying to refinance a property at higher interest rates with less value, it causes tension, it causes stress, and um, it could impact a firm's position on how innovative they want to be. And what we in the industry say is you go from innovation to maintenance. So um, like all of you, we read these articles in the local um, uh, pubs online. And uh, we today, we're going to try to go a little deeper with somebody who really knows what they're talking. Somebody who's got a command of the data, has the data in front of them, has been analyzing it, and is going to try to set us on a good course to understand how turbulent it could or could not be in 2024. Therefore, impacting or not impacting tech innovation budgets. So with that, I'd like to bring Stephen on. Stephen Bachbaum with the Director of Research for TREPS. Stephen, so nice to have you. Um, we, we've been having a lot of conversation <laughs> and uh, I love data, have always loved data, uh, have used data to predict things um, in 1990 and again in 2008. And uh, our conversations leading up today in prep have been fascinating. At your fingertips, at your keyboard, you've got access to all the data we need uh, to understand where we are. And hopefully you know, in 20, 25 minutes, we're going to let the audience understand a little better on, on what 2024 might mean financially to the market and therefore our capacity to invest in technology and innovation. So with that being said, why don't you give us a little idea of your background, even possibly before TREP, um, you know, when did you get interested in data and the stories it could tell you? Sure. So I'm going to go back to more or less at the beginning. I graduated from University of Georgia from their real estate program. And the I'll call it the first job. It was actually the second job I took out of college was with ING Investment Management. It's now Voya Investment Management in their portfolio management and analytics. So basically doing risk management, you know, reporting, re-underwriting of loans. And I did that for the first three years. And I started in 06. So the first three years was taking me into 08. And then when everything blew up with Lehman Brothers, AIG, Bear Stearns, et cetera, um, we realized that we had a lot of 
mortgage-backed security exposure, both on the residential side, but also importantly on the commercial side. So I actually got transitioned to the CMBS desk there uh, for the second half of my- in, in What year was this, 08 or 07? Uh, 08 was when I made the transition. Okay. So from 2009 to 2012, wow. I got moved to the CMBS desk. And it turns out I, I did a lot of digging on the Bloomberg terminal and found out that our company actually had the most exposure to junior mezzanine tranche CMBS bonds of anybody in the world. Um, because what was, I mean, to, to give you a little bit of inside baseball, ING was doing a similar business plan to what AIG was doing. And we call that the spread lending game, where you'd um, take AAA assets, swap them fixed to floats, so you'd be on the receiving end, so you'd reinvest the proceeds. And by and large, a lot of the uh, mezzanine bonds were still going to be money good, but the stress that got put on the balance sheet as a result of those swaps and deter deterioration in credit um, ratings and loan performance was just like a complete shock. And so we had to very quickly get our arms around the data. So I went from knowing nothing about CMBS to having to become as much of an expert as I possibly could. When you, when you first put your hands on the keyboard and started downloading that data into your Excel or data access database, whatever tool you used, do you remember that aha moment when, when you did the query group sort that you said, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, I, I can tell you, so one of the, the best aha moments, because um, it was a colleague of myself that got taken from the commercial mortgage whole loan team. So we were um, making loans to individual borrowers for the balance sheet of the investment management or insurance companies. We we're investing on behalf of the insurance companies. So we had a very traditional commercial real estate upbringing. And so we both got thrown into the CMBS world. And what we realized early on in the 2008 fallout was that there were a lot of five-year loans that were going to be coming due that weren't going to be able to pay off. And so we put on a trade that was taking advantage of that stress in the market because these, uh, these loans were paying about a five and a half percent coupon and the current interest rate environment was three to four percent. And so we thought, well, with these bonds trading at a premium, you know, if we go in there and buy the right bonds and they end up extending, we might look like we're buying a three to four percent yield. But if that cash flow gets extended, we start collecting that five and a half percent coupon. Right. Um, and this is like a no brainer trade for us. And so we went from that trade to looking at season credits to then looking at more recent vintage credit. Um, so it's kind of a fun, fun exercise. So when you finally realized that this was going to be big, was it before we all saw it on television or was it when we saw it on television? When did you realize things were getting pretty ugly? Uh, I would say that the moment when I knew it was going to be pretty bad was when the head of the commercial mortgage group really kind of started having a panic moment. And he was calling upstairs to find out exactly how much of these mortgage-backed securities we had. When, what to. month of 2008 was that? Ooh, I would say that was late. It was actually uh, 07. And it okay, was... So, okay, a year before the... So, yeah. so a year before the pack, so you didn't have to convince your executives. They started realizing this, this thing was going to get ugly. The, the stress was there. And then once we got into, and I, I remember this very distinctly, the fall of 2007, we were having discussions about, you know, exactly what was happening in residential credit. And somebody said, you know, there's no way you can get a hundred percent LTV residential loan for under 7%. And I just kind of laughed. I was like, well, it's funny. Cause I just got quoted one. <laughs> 
<laughs> that must be one of the last ones that'll you know ever get quoted like that. And it it just kind of like slapped me across the face to to think, my gosh, like what what exactly is going on and how what's the magnitude? And I don't want to go too deep in the woods because I want to get to the ultimate conversation about how this impacts operations of a business. But I got one other question as it relates to 2008. Any of that paper still on the books? <laughs> there is. Uh, believe it or not, there are some loans that are still stuck around. It might only be one or two loans left in a 2007 vintage deal that are now real estate owned. So they've been foreclosed. The lender holds title and they're just trying to maximize recovery proceeds. Um but that that still might be a very negative outcome in terms so of so that's monetary. 15 years of extend and pretend kick the can staying alive right i mean all these little it's yeah it's amazing phrase and again i went through the the 90 cycle which was insanely efficient mm -hmm. you know by 91 the rtc was formed resolution trust corporation all the ss were dumped into it they marked them to market which was 10 cents on a dollar, 25 cents on a dollar kind of thing. People came in, knew what they were getting into, had a base that was affordable, reinvested, you know, into the properties. And by 95, they were doing well. Right. Uh, and, and that was a five year process, maybe. And, and now we're 15 years and you're telling me there's still loans from 08. And here we have 2024 with, you know, with 659 billion, you know, possibly coming due um, this year. So any parallels do any guttural, you know, uh, feelings of what you experienced in 07 to what the headlines you're reading today? Are there any parallels whatsoever? There are in terms of the level of uncertainty and, you know, we call it kicking the can down the road. Um, is, is that's the strategy is, well, we don't know exactly what this loan might sell for if we were to liquidate it. Um, and ultimately we, we don't want to take a high loss severity if we think things will be on the men's two, three years from now. So that right. part of the game is ringing, you know, very, very similar. However, the big difference is going into 08, it was very much an over leverage underwriting, you know, credits type problem we had. Today, it's it's more or less rates centric. Um, I would say the underwriting has been much, much more disciplined. You, you always tend to have that, um, I would say, over leverage or you know, optimistic underwriting in the fringes of the market, but it's been much more disciplined this time around. But the rates seem to not be going in the direction people want because inflation continues and that there's still so much cash in the system that that you know, as a result of quantitative easing and printing mm -hmm. presses, if you will, since 09. So that's 15 years, right? And so getting that excess cash out of the system could be pretty painful. It, it certainly seems like it will be painful. And I'd be shocked if it wasn't, quite honestly. Um, so, so we now know what 23 looked like. Was that the peak of the bad dead situation or was that the first, second inning? I mean, what inning are we in in this thing? I would say we're maybe in the, the fourth, fifth inning. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't quite reached the halfway point. I think 2024 might ultimately prove to be the halfway point. You know, we were writing about this in our one of our daily newsletters that we put out at TREP called The Rundown, which is free to subscribe to. Um, and so my good buddy Arrest that was writing the intro to The Rundown yesterday um, wrote about the fear greed index. And so what I would say is, you know, to tell you where we've come from 2023, fear was keeping a lot of money on the sidelines. Bid ask spreads were wide and there wasn't any transaction volume. And then all of a sudden at the end of 2023 in December, and into January, we've seen a flurry of activity. 
And if we look, say, at CMBS issuance, um, we've had roughly $7 billion, a little over $7 billion in issuance in the conduit, large loan, and single asset, single borrower space this year, hmm. versus at the same point last year, it was roughly half that. Um, okay. So things have come back. It seems like we're starting to transition to that greed phase where you will see transactions materialize, but make no mistake, there's still a very large bid ask spread. So many of the, the buildings that we've been dealing with over the last 25 years find themselves in major urban areas, right? And those areas, in addition to this financial debt is issue, they've got the work from home experiment caused by COVID, which is still leaving people unsure as to what the return to work looks like. Then you've got the sustainability net zero carbon push, which is suggesting to keep people off of freeways and out of cars, right, to our commutes. Um, and then you've got, of course, crime, which we're starting to see, you know, poke its head into major metropolitan areas. It, it, does that extend this conversation? Does this impact this conversation as far as, you know, rent rolls and income and as it relates to, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of like the mother of all storms because you've got income pressure and you've got debt pressure. So your expenses are rising and your, your income is going the wrong direction. What are you seeing with these other factors that are playing into valuing, you know, current, current value of a, of a, of a building? It, it really muddies the water. It makes it very, very difficult to gain conviction around. Let's just think of like a very simple case. If I were to give you say an urban office property today and ask you to create a 10 year pro forma for the financials, you know, could we even get past year three or five before we just kind of throw our hands up in there and say, I, I have no idea, right? you know, and that's that's how I feel about it is, you know, if we think how long could this play out when we stabilize, it's really difficult to wrap your arms around when you have things like, say, AI happening in the background that, you know, could. I uh, didn't even. Yeah, I did. I uh, didn't even mention it, but I should have. Absolutely. Because there are people that are saying that, you know, one one you know, rack of computers in some data center, you know, in the middle of the desert or near a, a lake for cooling um, can do the work of a hundred people or a hundred seats. Right. And so that's yet, I mean, if you were to do a diagram of saying everything impacting this real estate market and, and the uncertainty, it, it's a big jigsaw puzzle. It, it really is. Um, and, you know, I think back to one of the comments that was made uh, that going back to my boss at ING, he said, you know, I think we're going to see a lost decade of interest rates. And at the time, I just kind of laughed. I was like, oh, Maurice is always the, the, the pessimist. You know, he's the perpetual bear. And then hot dang, if that didn't turn out to be right. And so I think, you know, right now, some of the comments that I hear being made about, you know, it's going to take years to work through this stress, kind of similar to what happened with regional malls. Right. You know, so many of those assets are still getting worked through um, and we've, we really haven't found um, ultimately, I think we maybe have found the floor on a lot of these assets, but we haven't figured out the adaptive reuse. The yet. adaptive reuse yet. Exactly. Well, I mean, we've seen the apartment buildings go up next to the mall. We've seen, you know, gymnasiums and, and you know, health centers and, you know, uh, other uses, but I don't think that journey's done either. And, and P.S., most of the people I talk to where I have this conversation with them, I say, is this a typical 10-year cycle or a paradigm shift? Almost to the number, they're saying paradigm shift. So yes. in, in addition to all the 
technical financial issues we're dealing with, which we have seen before. We've got this paradigm shift of work from home, which was caused by a pandemic, which is creating this technical obsolescence or functional obsolescence of these buildings that not everybody's got figured out, right? Um, right. One more question before we go to break, and then we're going to come back and talk about how technology can solve some of these problems. Um, if you were to throw your dart, what year do we see stabilization? Like, okay, we found the we found our footing, we found the ground. Today is this is 2024. What year do you think we see the floor? I'm gonna I'm gonna lob that dart and say, you know, on the longer end, 2028, 2026 would be the earliest I could I could see right now that that happening, but 2028 feels realistic. So we'll take the average. We'll say 2027. So that's three years from now. Yeah. And that's, that still seems kind of aggressive given if it's a paradigm shift. That could be even longer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, and what's interesting, 90, we said stay alive till 95. And then, you know, about a year and a half ago, I started hearing stay alive till 25. I go, I kind of think I've heard this before, but a lot of people that I'm talking to as well, you know, are saying 25, 26, 27, couple people have said 28. I think 26, 27 is not a stretch. You know? yeah. So that's a perfect segue to our next conversation, which we'll have after the break, um, is how do you manage operations, um, knowing that your budgets might be constrained? You can't stop innovating. Technology is going to play a role in these buildings. They're not uh, going to want to come back to the cube farm of pre-pandemic days. They're going to want immersive experiences. They're going to want safe experiences. They're going to want broadband that works, cell phones that work. Uh, I can go down the list of technologies that are going to have to be put into this building um, before people are going to come back and, and really have that modern experience they're looking for. So let's hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back. Um, great conversation. All right, Stephen, I know technology is not necessarily your forte, but I think you look at enough operating budgets and understand what it takes to run a real estate asset that I think you'll have some good insight on this. So before the break, I mentioned a few, but let's just think about it. Today's modern workplace, your cell phone needs to work. Okay. Uh, in today's modern workplace, uh, you need Wi-Fi. Um, you need efficient maintenance and operations, meaning you can't have four truck rolls to fix the the chiller, you should do it in one, which means that chiller's got to be com connected to some type of network. Um, you can bring down your operating costs by taking a serious look at energy consumption and how how you're doing it, right? I mean, is, are you using, is there low voltage in any of your building? Um, or are you still relying on that, you know, a AC clunky architecture of 100 years or 75 years or whatever? Um, from your perspective, when you're looking at the way some of these companies are being run, are you seeing a serious look at technology uh, as a way out, as a tool out, or are those conversations, are, are your conversations strictly financial and technical? So a lot of our conversations are, are structural, technical, um, looking generally at the, the operating expense numbers, not digging too much beneath that to the technology that might be giving you an efficiency advantage. But that being said, that's something we always keep our ear to the, the ground on um, because you know, we need to know what's happening with technological innovations, trends in the marketplace, and, and what building owners or operators are doing um, to try and stay competitive or counterbalance some of the, um, the expense load trends that we see in the data. So to give you just an example of one item that has come up in conversation 
so many times over the last, uh, say, 18 months is insurance. So the fact that you're seeing insurance now even enter into the discussion when in the past it was, well, you know, it should only be about 3% of your operating expense um, budgets and we're just going to grow that at 3%. You know, throw that out the window, it's, it's doubled over the last five years and you're seeing deals fall apart at the closing table because, you know, either you can't get coverage or it's, you know, the coverage that you can get, the cost is 50% higher than right. what it was two years ago. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, so I, I was in, a, um, in Florida, in Tampa the uh, last couple of days and had a phenomenal meeting with a senior real estate executive, not a senior technology executive, but a senior real estate executive. And he brought me into their leasing room, if you will. And he had the most stunning 3D model of the entire city of Tampa, much like I saw in Singapore, Shanghai, and Korea when we traveled Asia. And then he had a, a real engine, which is a gaming software platform, uh, juxtaposed on top of this model of the city. So they kind of superimposed the windows and the color of the building. So you literally saw a 3D representation. And at one point I said, is this like physical and digital? I can't figure it out. And he turned off the lights. He goes, no, it's both. And I go, wow, that was some crazy magic. And I said to him, and he goes, well, watch this. And he clicked the button. He said, okay, there, here's our project, blue. Here's, here's the occupancy, blue. Here's the different developers. And I said, can you like take CoStar data in and, and you know, present it on this model? He goes, oh yeah, I'll open API. I was blown away. Okay, but here's the most important thing he said, or one of the most important things he said. I said, how's been your return on investment on this technology? And he said, off the charts. He's, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, bringing people in here, communicating complex things. He had all the data statistics of the city that you would normally be handed a manila folder. They were all right there. You could click on them and go deeper. You could intentionally leave this room with every question answered. And he goes, that meant shorter deal spans, better deal spans, more transparency, more accurate data. And PS, if you're that innovative on the front end, we trust that you're running the back end really well. You're not wasting energy. You're turning off the lights. I'll tell you, it was, it was a wonderful experience. And by the way, we're going to be talking about this company and this project a lot at our conference in June. So I, I've been doing this for a long time and, you know, I'm biased, but I don't think you get out of this after the technical issues get resolved. I don't think you get out of this without a significant investment in technology, but there is the rub, you know, building valued less debt, too much debt, tightening the belt. Where do you find the money you need to make this building modern again? Yes. Yeah. So at, at Trep, like we've always been known for our data quality and depth of data, whether it's from the CMBS bonds down to the operating expense data that we collect. And we recently engaged in a project to basically make it easier to connect data sets. So the service is called TREP Connect, where we generate a unique identifier at the property level so that, say, if you're, you have a portfolio of assets in a city, let's take New York, um, and you know the open data that you can get from the city of New York for energy benchmarking could really help you out in understanding your competitive advantage or what you could be improving on. But when it comes to actually, you know, mapping your assets to the data that is in that database, it's, do you want to do that by hand? Because we all well, know. How well, and, and, and that's a great story because anecdotally, I've been told that during the pandemic, when the bu buildings were basically empty, the energy consumption stayed, stayed the same. 
right? That's, and you would think, right. think, okay, there nobody's there. You turn off the lights, but then you get into complications of leases, what it takes to create a you know an operating environment that your tenant can come to, i.e., heating, air conditioning, lighting. It's complicated, but but if if the technology infrastructure was there in the whole city, where you could at least see who was in the building and maybe shut off the 28th through the 60th floor because nobody was there, we could have made a dent. You know? That's right. So That's right. so I think it's going to be very turbulent. Let's call it to 2027. But for those leaders who understand technology strategic implications, lean into it carefully, selectively, no hype, you know, no, no FOMO here. I think there's going to be some real winners who come out of this thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because tenants, you know, on the insurance, you know, example, just to lean into that a little bit more, you know, the tenants themselves, if you're on triple net lease and you're having to pay the expenses, you care a lot about building efficiency. That's in in a world of cost control and downsizing your footprint. You now have the option to, to relocate. So in PS, if you show an insurance company that you're using technology to protect you from cyber breaches, to protect you from accidents for incident response. I mean, there are a hundred applications where technology can provide a better, safer, more enjoyable, a better managed asset. Maybe you can go back to that negotiating table and show them that it shouldn't be 6%. It should be three. That's right. Well, you, we obviously went over. I don't care. This is such a great conversation. We are going to continue this over the next four months, and we're going to continue to refine this. And I'm really hoping to get you to the conference in June because I think your message and the data that we uncover in the next few months will be valuable to all the technology people who have to build budgets for 24, 25, and beyond to understand where this market is going to take them. So, Stephen, thank you so much for your hard work and for sharing it with our audience today. Thank you, Jim. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Be well. All right. Well, um, unbelievable conversation. And uh, I think we could have went on two hours, um, but we're going to get to one of my favorite parts of Realcom Live, and that's the news. And I think we got another Howard stand in. I don't think it's Lisa. I think it might be Nancy. There she Good is. morning. <laughs> Good to see you. Um, Howard, is Howard ever coming point. back? Yeah, well, he was in Sydney, which at an incredible event uh, with with a bunch of CIOs and technology professionals there. Lisa and I actually poked in to his meeting um, this week, and uh, they were just having a great time. And 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 so I think he is back now, though. So uh, yeah, well, well he's having such a great time. Who knows if we'll ever get him back? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll get out of your way, let you do the news, and I'll be back in a few minutes. All righty. Well, happy to fill in for Howard. Here's a quick recap of a few of the articles for this week's news brief, which is published every Thursday morning. If you haven't received it in your inbox, click the news link at the top of our website to read the latest issues and to sign up. Our first article is a top of mind concern for businesses worldwide. It was disclosed this week that scammers reportedly swindled approximately $25 million from a multinational company's Hong Kong branch using deep fake technology. The fraud began with an employee in the finance department receiving a message purportedly from the company's UK-based CFO, leading to a video call involving the CFO and other employees, all later revealed to be deep fakes. Following instructions from the fraudulent call, the employee transferred $25.6 million across 15 transactions to various Hong Kong bank accounts. It took a week before the company realized the deception. You may also have heard of the recent deepfake video incident targeting celebrity Taylor Swift. 
These scams underscore the rising threat posed by the nefarious uses of this technology and highlights growing concerns and calls for legislative action by Congress. Next up, the Wall Street Journal reports that Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, is asking foreign investors and governments for up to $7 trillion. The article delves into Altman's efforts to secure funding for developing custom hardware tailored to optimize the performance of AI systems. Altman believes that specialized chips could revolutionize AI capabilities and efficiency. While specific details about the investors and the timeline remain undisclosed, OpenAI's pursuit underscores the critical role of hardware in advancing AI innovation. The landscape surrounding hardware development is pretty competitive already, with established play players like NVIDIA and Intel investing heavily in the space. OpenAI's entry into the chip development arena adds a new dimension to the competition, potentially disrupting the market dynamics and driving further innovation. So what does this mean to the commercial real estate industry? Well, among other things, the investment will pay for the infrastructure to support Altman's ambitious plans. And building out that infrastructure could have real implications for CRE, considering the office space and data centers needed to house expanded operations. Altman posted, we believe the world needs more AI infrastructure, fab capacity, energy, data centers, et cetera, than people are currently planning to build. Building massive scale AI infrastructure and a resilient supply chain is critical to economic competitiveness. Open AI will try to help. We shall see. And then lastly, Microsoft has expanded its cloud for sustainability with, a, with new data and AI capabilities to aid customers in measuring, reducing, and reporting environmental impacts. The enhancements include sustainability-focused data services in Microsoft Fabric and an AI model integrated into the Copilot tool for improved insights in the Microsoft Sustainability Manager program. Platform, I'm sorry. These features enable organizations to transform environmental and social data into analytics, aiding in regulatory reporting and decision-making. Specifically, the AI model helps identify emissions reductions, opportunities, and anomalies, providing critical insight for managing ESG data efficiently. Microsoft's holistic approach now covers carbon emissions, water, and waste management, offering a comprehensive view of sustainability impact. And that's it for this week. We'll uh, take it back to you, Jim. All right. Well, you know, a quick comment on all three. Um, yet another cybersecurity issue that we're going to have to deal with. If you ask me what inning we're in, we're in, we haven't even gotten on the bus to the park yet because cybersecurity combined with AI is just opening up a whole new realm. And if can you imagine if I did not know that I was really talking to you on this? And that the deep right. fake was so good that some other voice off the camera was using your face, your video, your actions and putting words into your mouth. I mean, we're, we're going to be going into this deep at the conference and the cyber forum and other places because it's and a big deal. These were on camera, yeah, on you know, camera, live, other employees, live. Live. totally convincing. Totally convincing. All right. And they said they were a little nervous, but it was so convincing in the, on the video that they um, you know, said it, it's got to be true. Um, on the open, uh, on the uh, Sam Altman thing, uh, I uh, read the book um, Chip Wars, would recommend it to everybody. Great, great, great uh, book. 
it clearly shows the last 40 years where they were, where they've been developed, where they went, where they are now, what needs to be done. You know, it's it's a it's a relatively easy read. Anybody in the tech space should read it because it gives you context. And last but not least, Microsoft injects AI into you know the sustainability data ESG. Microsoft's injecting AI into everything. In fact, when I describe our next week's guest, uh, and, and we are wrapping our arms around Microsoft and and all the implications of Copilot and all the other Microsoft products, um, because AI is complicated. It, it, you just can't push a button and the magic happens. You have to have a, a strategy. You have to have data governance. You have to have good, clean data. It needs to constantly be updated. So these stories are spot on and hopefully people take the time to read them. So. And they're impacting everything, everything within an organization. Well, it's not just you're, hardware. It's all software You need, you need well. to be dealing with 10 things at once. You're juggling 10 major things at once. And I, I'm starting to feel and hear a lot of that stress in organizations saying, how do we keep up with this? And that, that's what we've been trying to do is, you know, we're out there digging and trying to organize and make sense some, for some of these topics. It's not just that AI is cool. It's like, okay, be specific. Show me exactly why AI is cool. Show me the weaknesses and the strengths to help me with my strategy. So, yeah. all Reminds right. Reminds me yeah. of when the PC came out. Yeah. Well, yeah. Revolutionized yeah. everything we did. And then, and then the internet, and right? Is, we've, this is that big. Then, yeah, yeah. Some people are saying it's actually bigger than the internet, which very, very, very well could be. All right. Well, well listen, thanks you have for a having great me. Morning. Thank Hopefully you very much. Back next week. I think he's back, and uh, but thank you for filling. I appreciate it. All right. Um, before I close out and uh, talk about our next uh, week's guest, let's hear from our final sponsor, and I'll be right back. All right. So keeping on the AI theme, next week's guest, um, just a phenomenal guy, smart, hardworking. Um, is going to be coming in and talking about what? None other than AI. So we've been doing an awful lot of work on AI, trying to dig deep, You know, starting all the way from last year's conference, going into buildings AI in the fall, our AI advisory group, monthly meetings. I mean, this is not an easy topic to understand. Kind of some big uh, bucket areas that we're starting to see develop is AI can be applied to the front end, the smart building, the back end, the operations, and then also the productivity stack which means how are your workers using AI on a daily basis inside of a real estate company? Not necessarily the accounting or the lease administration systems, which will take that data and play around with it, but really how are you run the business? Well, Joseph gave us a demo a couple of weeks ago about he runs how he runs his day and his team and his company. And I will tell you, this guy's on fire. You are not going to want to miss this. He's going to give us a little demo. And we're excited to have them and uh, continue this diet, you know, this discussion of AI and all of their interesting topics. So with that, I say thank you very much. Have a great day. Be well, and we will see you next week on Real Com Live.